Um, I took my title from the, the, the last verse that we just read together, verse 11, where it says that these are empowered by one and the same spirit. So one and the same spirit is the title uh, of the message today. And this morning, as we look at chapter 12, uh, verses 4 through 11, Paul uh, describes how genuine Christian unity is based upon the fact <clears throat> that there is one God, one Lord, one Spirit, and one common purpose for spiritual gifts. There is the question also not only of unity, but there's the question of diversity in our text as well. You probably picked up on that, seeing that the same Holy Spirit distributes a variety of spiritual gifts as he wills to various individuals in the church. In other words, not everyone receives the same gifts. Now, next Sunday, Lord willing, Paul will address the subject of the body of Christ. And he's going to focus on the diversity that takes place among our members before he goes on at the end of the chapter to talk about uh, certain offices in the church and how these offices relate to spiritual gifts. But unless we understand the gifts of the Spirit in relationship to the body of Christ, we really won't understand their purpose very well or how they're supposed to be exercised in the church. So this, again, is part of a, a larger section. We started last Sunday in chapter 12. This section goes through the end of chapter 14, and it's really one long thought. So even though we break it up into little sections each week, there's one big theme that's being discussed uh, all through these chapters, and it's the subject of spiritual gifts. Um, and in fact, if you think about just chapter 12 so far, you can't talk about spiritual gifts without talking about the unity of Christ's body, as Paul's going to do today. You can't talk about spiritual gifts without understanding spiritual things that he had referred to back in verse 1. And you can't understand spiritual things, Paul told us last week, unless you understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and the church is his body. These things are all interconnected in this chapter. They all are important to understand the whole. So this morning in verses 4 through 11, we're going to take just a few moments this morning before the Lord's table to, to take up the subject of the unity of Christ's body and the diversity of the gifts of the Spirit as they're distributed to the church. So three points this morning. First, the unity of the giver. Let's look at the unity of the giver, verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, Paul states here, that Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. The word that the ESV translated variety here comes from a word that literally means to divide. Uh, the gifts of the Spirit are divided. Uh, we might say divvied up uh, among the members of the church. These gifts of the Spirit are known as, and we don't throw uh, Greek words out a lot around here, but uh, you'll recognize this one. The, the spiritual gifts comes from the word charismata, which is where we get the charismatic movement. Um, and that's what charismata is, the gifts of the Spirit. The, the root of that word charismata is the word charis, and charis means grace. So these are gifts of grace that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. They re, the term refers to extraordinary abilities that the Holy Spirit gives to individuals in the church, specifically, 
for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So all of you that follow the Lord Jesus, all of you who are born again, you have been given spiritual gifts. And these gifts are designed to help you build up this body, the body of Christ. Now, many of the Corinthians selfishly boasted about possessing God's gifts or, or used them in an inappropriate manner. Now, we'll get into that more when we get into chapter 14. So we won't spend a lot of time on that today. But an inappropriate manner of using spiritual gifts is to use them to call attention to yourself or to use them as like a cover in order to create division or schisms or factions in the church uh, or as a means of self-gratification. Perhaps you have witnessed people like this, uh, professing Christians engaged in inappropriate behavior in public and then claiming to do so uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is what was happening in Corinth for sure. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are intended to bring unity to the Corinthian church. They're intended to build up the body of Christ, but instead they were becoming a source of pride and division, something we definitely don't want them to be causing here. This issue becomes very clear in the next verse. Look at verse 5. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. That there are varieties of service, different ways of serving, points to the role and the function of spiritual gifts. The service of others. That's really what spiritual gifts are for. The word for service, by the way, uh, give you another Greek word. The, the word for service is the same word that we get our word for deacon, one who serves in the church. Paul's point here is that while there are different ways to serve one another, we should never forget that there is one Lord whom we all serve together. So we shouldn't make the mistake like the Corinthians did and assume that the more spectacular a gift that you may have, the more important you are. Since Jesus is Lord, according to this text, the recipients of his gifts cannot be greater than the Lord who gave them to us. It's all about unity here. So if the, if the goal of, of having spiritual gifts, if the end of having spiritual gifts is the service of others, then that means we should not look down on what may appear to be more mundane gifts or less glamorous gifts. This is what the Corinthians had been doing. They had been belittling the service of others, boasting about their own gifts, claiming it was the Holy Spirit who instructed individuals to disrupt the normal order of service and worship. And we'll get to this later down the road in 2 Corinthians, but this fascination with individuals who had spectacular gifts, spectacular powers, is what made the Corinthians very vulnerable to what, what we'll learn about are called super apostles. Uh, and Paul had to deal, deal with that over in 2 Corinthians 11 with this church. Notice too in verse 5 that when Paul speaks of the Lord, he's speaking of Jesus. That's what the word Lord here means. And and, and as you noticed, we have God representing the Father, 
we have the Lord, the Son, and we have the Spirit here in verses 4 through 6. So this is a very remarkable portion of Scripture. There aren't very many portions of Scripture where we see the Trinity laid out so clearly and so equally, and yet here it is exactly that. So don't overlook that. And then in verse 6, Paul continues this line of thought. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Again, the gifts of the Spirit are directly connected to God's working, His empowering. That's the word for work. He will come back to this again in his summary down in verse 11. The point is that God is the one working in and through these gifts of the Spirit to build up the body of Christ. So the gifts of the Spirit should further God's purposes and not anyone's personal agenda. That's the point of the unity here. Now let's talk about the diversity of the gifts. Secondly, verses 7 through 10. The reason for God's activity and his gifts here is spelled out in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, the church as a whole, Corinthians and Indianapolis and the Hoosiers, yeah. Uh, the church as a whole benefits from its members who have these different gifts. It's for the common good. The gifts of the Spirit are given to each one. Do you notice that? Which means all the members of the body of Christ are given at least one gift. And it's not unreasonable to also conclude that no one person gets all of the gifts. They're spread out. The fact that these gifts are manifested, they're a manifestation of the Spirit, emphasize this divine action. God, God gives these gifts to us as He decides, as He wills, but He gives them in such a way that as you exercise these gifts, people can see it. They're manifest. They're on display. So as Paul has been making plain here, these gifts are for the common good. This means that any exercise of the so-called gifts must have as its goal the well-being of Christ's church. So if, if you have a different goal with your spiritual gifts, you need to get it in line with the right goal, which is building up the common good. Someone who's promoting themselves, uh, boasting about the greatness of the gift that they have, uh, or through some kind of self-gratification, talking about these amazing religious experiences that they've had, is not manifesting the gifts of the Spirit. Just as someone who's speaking by the Spirit, we learned back in the first three verses of this chapter, cannot say that Jesus is accursed. You can't do the wrong thing if you're exercising the Spirit's gifts in a spiritual way. And in verses 8 through 10, Paul lists some of these spiritual gifts and briefly touches on how they're to be used in the churches the difficulty with these verses 8 through 10 are that some of these gifts are not present today in the church Um, as early as the time of the church father chrysostom uh, john chrysostom who lived from about 344 to 407 a.d so 
So Jesus died around 30 AD, right? So, so really about 300 years after Christ. Just in that amount of time, Christians were already wondering about what these gifts meant. We can read it in their writings. Since it was thought that they had long ceased to operate in the churches. So there are two main views today on how to think about these spectacular gifts. One approach is taken by uh, a lot of folks today who would call themselves Pentecostals. Um, And there are a lot of Pentecostals or Charismatics um, in our world. They claim that all of these spiritual gifts, all of them, are still active and continue in the church today. This view is called continuationism. Make sense? They still continue today. Now, my response to that kind of a claim would be this. How does such a claim like that, that these gifts of the Spirit are still being manifest, all of them, how does that actually match up with what we see in the New Testament? When we see how these gifts are used in the the early church, is that really what we see at work among Pentecostals today in the world? I would say it's not. Uh, Despite all the claims that are made by people who think these are normative today, they're still happening, where are the dramatic miracles? Where are the people who are raised from the dead? Where are people who had whole limbs missing that are getting them replaced? Where are, you know, where are these kinds of spectacular gifts taking place today like they were in the early church? Where are the lepers that are instantly made whole? We don't see it, at least not with medical verification. In the New Testament, these kinds of miracles in the early church were quite public. Often, they were made in the presence of unbelievers. They were verifiable. If all of the gifts are still operating today, including the more dramatic ones, where and how are these gifts being manifested today? There's the other approach. So that's the one approach, continuationism. All the gifts are still in action today. The other approach is to argue that these miraculous, spectacular gifts ceased after the age of the apostles. This view is called cessationism. And it's the view that this church takes in our doctrinal statement. This approach solves the problem of why these things don't go on in the church. But it does raise other questions for us, like where does Paul say that these kinds of gifts will cease? We'll look at that in the weeks ahead. The key is to understand that, that Paul, as he's starting churches in the New Testament, as he's writing these letters to these new churches, he's not ordaining new apostles. As you, as you see the ministry of Paul, you don't see him going around ordaining new apostles and new prophets and things like this. What you see him doing is ordaining pastors and deacons in the churches. The miraculous gifts are not continuing um, theologian B.B. Warfield, uh, who's, who's been long with the Lord now, but he wrote that such gifts were distinctly the authentication of apostles. They were part of the credentials of the apostles as authoritative agents of God in founding the apostolic church. So, Warfield says, these miraculous gifts necessarily passed away with the 
apostolic age. In other words, these gifts were given to the apostles, first to the 12, right? And then uh, to Paul, of course, who wasn't one of the 12, uh, and the one who replaced Judas, uh, Matthias, in Acts chapter 1, right? These special gifts were given to those people um, and to some in the early church. But after the apostles died off, after that, after that age passed, what we see in history is that these gifts aren't functioning anymore um, until about the early 20th century. Uh, so a long time later, um, this, uh, it starts creeping up in this group called Pentecostalism. Back to uh, verses 8 through 10. Let me read them again. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, the another, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another um, the ability to, uh, uh, to, to another the interpretation of tongues. So a couple of things to think about in regards to all of this. First, this list of spiritual gifts is not exhaustive. Okay, this is not all of the gifts because we know that because there are other such lists in Paul's other letters. There's a list in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. There's a list in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Uh, so that's one thing we know. Second, there are also some profound echoes from the Old Testament here. Uh, you'll remember that on the day of Pentecost, when the speaking in tongues first happened, there was that crowd that was gathered around that upper room, and the 120 came down. Peter preached this great sermon. And in Peter's sermon, he referred to the prophet Joel. Because in Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 32, Joel predicted that the last days would be characterized by the pouring out of God's Spirit from heaven, which is what happened on the day of Pentecost, and all of these amazing things that would come as a result of the spirits being poured out. Now, let me also say, it's difficult to, to determine with precision what some of these gifts actually involved. Um, but uh, it's also plain, uh, plain wrong, actually, to, to do something with no biblical precedent. So, in other words, we've probably all seen this from time to time, but if you ever see a televangelist on the TV, right, and they say something like, I have a word of knowledge, okay, about you who's watching the TV at home. I know something about you through the TV. When you hear evangelists do things like that, they're using this gift talked about here in Scripture, a word of knowledge, an utterance of knowledge, but they're using them um, not in the way that it was practiced in the Scripture, but in the way they want to practice it today. You have to be very careful about applying your own definitions to the Scripture. We want, it, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture. And so, what does it mean, an utterance of wisdom and an utterance of knowledge? It's difficult to sell. What I can tell you is that I think that probably the most promising solution understands wisdom and knowledge to refer to the gift of teaching. And if that's correct, then there's really not a sharp distinction between wisdom and knowledge here in these verses. 
In fact, wisdom and knowledge are used together many times in the Old Testament. Um, and I can give you some references if you want to uh, look those up afterward. But to, to think about why um, I might say that, um, there, first of all, there's no mention of a gift of teaching here in our text, in, in, the, in verses 8 through 10. But the gift is so important to Paul that he includes that gift of teaching in every other list of spiritual gifts that he gives. So it seems unlikely there would be no mention of this gift here in the first listing of the gifts. So that's one reason. Another reason is back in the beginning of this letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there was that long discussion on wisdom. Do you remember that? Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 2. And it's linked with the word or the utterance of the cross. So it suggests to me that an utterance of wisdom unpacks the message of the cross. If you, have, if you have a word or an utterance of wisdom, it has something to do with the gospel, something to do with the cross. Third, knowledge, it seems, is, is very closely related to teaching, uh, to the gospel, again, which is proclaimed. And I could point you to a number of other texts, Romans 15, 14, Philippians 1, 9, Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Knowledge and teaching seem to be very closely linked in Paul's letters. So what do I say? I'm just suggesting from that that the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge are maybe best understood as referring to the gift of teaching, okay? The gift of faith, the next one that's mentioned here, cannot be identical with saving faith, right? Because all Christians have that. So this has to be something more. This has to be something that's reserved only for some Christians that are given this gift. The gift of faith must refer to some kind of extraordinary faith. Faith uh, like Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 13 in the next chapter in verse 2. Faith that uh, can remove mountains. Extraordinary faith. Maybe, maybe it's the gift of faith that, that James is referring to in, in James chapter 5 when he says that the prayer of faith can save the one who is sick. The gift of healing is mentioned here. Almost certainly refers to the healing of those who suffer from sickness, disease, infirmities, like like Jesus did, like being blind or lame or deaf. Uh, It's difficult to to understand if there's a significance to to why Paul used the word gifts, plural here. Gifts, plural of healing. Uh, Maybe the plural is used here. Because there's different kinds of healing. Uh, some suffer from diseases. Others have a, a congenital problem like blindness or, or something else. Then five gifts are mentioned in verse 10. Miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. Let me just quickly kind of run through these. We're going to be talking at some length about a couple of these in future passages. So... We'll leave that for for there. The working of miracles is not difficult to understand, right? Uh, Some think it should be distinguished from healing because healing is mentioned before this. So if that's the case, then miracles here might refer to other things like Jesus did, like exercising demons, right? Uh, Paul and the apostles had to do that on occasion, call demons out of a person who was possessed. Uh, Maybe even nature miracles like Jesus did, uh, walking on the water, turning 
uh, the water and, and into wine or multiplying the bread and the fish. Uh, we know that uh, even in the Old Testament, the prophet uh, Elijah and Elisha had some of that experience as well, right? So maybe uh, this working of miracles refers more to things like that. A distinguishing of spirits is a gift where, where one is able to discern true from false. This is a gift we see that Paul recognizes. Do you remember there was the woman over in Acts chapter 16? This is why Paul and Silas got thrown in jail at Philippi, remember? Um, there was a woman who was demon-possessed, and she was, she was proclaiming the gospel, right? She was saying the right thing um, to people around Paul and Silas, but Paul recognized that this woman who's actually proclaiming the gospel is possessed by an evil spirit, and then he cast that out of her. Well, most of us might not know that if we hear someone proclaiming the gospel. We may not know that there's a demon in them as well. I mean, that would be odd, uh, to say the least. But distinguishing of spirits perhaps um, helped with that, with that discernment. Um, this gift is especially valuable in detecting false teaching. First uh, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 talk about that. Then we've got prophecy. The meaning of prophecy is particularly difficult. Uh, there are a lot of different ideas with regard to prophecy. And, I, and this is one of those that we're going to consider further in the weeks to come. So hang on a little bit, and we'll come back to this in the weeks to come. But for now, let me just suggest that prophecy is communicating revelation from God in a spontaneous way. Okay, so it's like, God spoke to a prophet in the moment and the prophet communicated in the moment what God had spoken to him or her. Um, we'll see this, for example, over in 1 Corinthians 14, chapter 20, or verses 29 to 32. What happens there is there's someone speaking in the church, in the assembly, and while he's speaking, someone, a prophet, who's sitting in the assembly, gets a revelation from God, and the one who's speaking has to stop and let the one who just got the prophecy from the Lord speak and tell what that revelation was. So we have an example of that in 1 Corinthians 14. We'll get to that and talk more about it when we get there. A similar incident happened in Acts chapter 11. Uh, verses 27 and 28, with the prophecy of a man named Agabus. Uh, God revealed to him that there would be a famine in the land. Um, now, that doesn't mean that prophecy always foretells the future. Sometimes it can speak to current circumstances as well. Uh, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 2, there was a prophecy given in the church there at Antioch that Paul and Barnabas are to be set apart and sent out in mission work. That was something that happened in the moment, for the present. Um, prophecy can also be used to bring others to faith. It, it can reveal the secrets of the heart. We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. So prophecy could be even granted during preaching, since it provides insight into what a person or a group needs to hear from God. And then we come to tongues. The nature of the gift of tongues, as you probably know, is debated as well. 
Um, many people think that the gift, of, the, the gift in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 differs from what we see in the book of Acts. Uh, and many think that it describes what we might say are ecstatic utterances. You've heard those before, haven't you? Probably on your TVs again. Uh, when someone all of a sudden, out of nowhere, will do something like, you know. And uh, they're supposedly speaking in tongues, ecstatic utterances in the moment. No, I'm not going to do that again. Um, I would suggest to you that the gift of tongues, and again, we're going to get to this in other passages coming up, but the gift of tongues is foreign languages, um, just as we see in the book of Acts. Um, In Acts chapter 2, the gift is in human languages, because people from all over the world who were in Jerusalem, here's what Acts chapter 2 says, verse 6, the people were hearing them speak in his own language, verse 8. They asked the question, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Chapter 2, verse 11, we're hearing this in our own tongues. Um, So I would say that what was normative in the book of Acts in the first century was that the gift of tongues was a known foreign language, a language that humans spoke somewhere, but a language that the person speaking in that language had not learned. That's what made it miraculous. That's what made it spectacular. It would be as if I started talking to you or started preaching today in Egyptian, which would be Arabic probably, right? Yeah. Um, But I don't know Arabic. I've never studied Arabic. And so if I started speaking to you fluently in in Arabic today, then you might have a cause to say, "Uh, that might be the gift of tongues. But I'm suggesting... And, and I'll, I'll suggest to you that that has, no, that has no longer takes place as well. There's a reference in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, which we'll get to um, very shortly in our preaching, that refers to the tongues of men and of angels. Um, that, the tongues of angels, some have said, well, that's the blah, 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 blah. Oh, I did it again. Um, that's that language, that gibberish uh, that you might hear from charismatics today. A non-human language. But I don't believe that's the case, and we'll look at that verse again in more detail soon. Um, In Acts chapter 2 and verse 11, those who spoke in tongues proclaimed the mighty works of God, and the people present understood. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, which we'll get to, tongue speaking is directed to God and not to the people, different from what was happening in Acts chapter 2. And no one understood what was being said in, Acts, in 1 Corinthians 14 too. So we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 14. But I would suggest to you today, put my cards out on the table, that a careful examination of Acts and 1 Corinthians suggests that this gift is, is not of a different nature than human language. The gift of interpretation of tongues is the last one mentioned there. It's not difficult to understand, right? Someone who has the gift is able to translate the foreign language so that others are able to understand what's being said. So when someone would speak in a language that they did not know, a real human language, 
then you would need an interpreter who also didn't know that language naturally and supernaturally, miraculously, was gifted by the Holy Spirit the ability to understand that language so as to tell the people the message from the Lord. All right, that's a lot to lay on you. But uh, we'll be working that out in the weeks to come. So just hang in there. Finally, in verse 11, notice a summary statement. Uh, He summarizes his point about the unity and diversity of these gifts. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All of these diverse gifts are from the same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only gives gifts to every Christian, but according to this verse, he also determines who gets what gifts and why. Since these diverse gifts come from the same source, they should have the same effect to build up the body of Jesus Christ in which the Holy Spirit dwells. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and prepare for our final songs here in just a moment. I'll ask our leadership team to prepare for the Lord's table. As these folks are moving, there's two issues in closing that we should consider from our text this morning. The first issue is this. If these gifts of the Spirit are still given to Christ's people today, then how do I know which of these gifts I might have? And obviously, I'm referring to the spiritual gifts that I believe are still at work today. Well, the answer is, is not that difficult, and I think I would give it to you in the form of a question. Well, what do you like doing, Christian? And what are you good at doing that helps other people, that's useful in building up others? There's no question these gifts are supernatural, right? If, if a Christian feels a desire to serve Christ's church in a particular way. We would call that an internal call. You have a desire to serve the Lord's church in a specific way, then you should pursue that. And if someone enjoys an activity of service and you discover that you do it well, they have what we sometimes call an external call. This is how you might know that you have a particular gift of the Spirit. In fact, it's also the case very frequently that other Christians, especially other Christian leaders or people around you who have influence on you, who mentor you, who disciple you, uh, pastors, ministry leaders, others, might call attention to particular skills that you have that are on display for the church to see. And, and that you are demonstrating in your service to the church. And that might be a way that you understand what you have been gifted with. So that's one thing. What are the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given to me? And then the second issue that's raised by the text, I think, is that the gifts of the Spirit are given to serve the common good, which is the building up of Christ's body. The gifts of the Spirit were not given to divide the church. That's obvious. Brothers and sisters, when the charismatic movement swept through churches years ago, the first thing that happened is that it divided the church into two camps. Those who thought the gifts were coming back and that everybody should use them, and those who were opposed 
who insisted the gifts ceased when the apostolic era ended. As a result of a supposed work of the Spirit, churches were divided. The Holy Spirit does not create schisms in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work is obvious when we think about this in biblical categories, but not as obvious when we think about it in pagan categories. Think about this. In a church, do God's people love each other? Do people sing joyfully and faithfully participate in the worship of the church? Is food provided and served at the potlucks? Uh, yeah. Do, do people care for one another in times of need? Do they bear one another's burdens? Do they send cards to one another? Do they make phone calls to one another? Do they pray for one another? Do people long to see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ? And do sinners repent? Is the gospel preached? And do people desire to hear the word of God proclaimed to them? Are the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's table administered in accordance to the word of God? Do people do these things, all of these things, without trying to draw attention to themselves. If these things are the case, then brothers and sisters, I think you can say you see the Holy Spirit at work in a church through His gifts. And as a result, we should praise Him. If these things are present in the church, we can be sure the gifts of the Holy Spirit are being used to build up the body of Christ for the common good and for the glory of Christ. 